Hop, hop, hooray. Nordstrom Rack's got sweet deals on everything Easter, which is Sunday, March 31st. Get to Nordstrom Rack now and save on Kate Spade, New York, Two-Faced, Steve Madden, Calvin Klein, and more from just $30. Score great brands and great prices on Easter looks for everyone, plus spring decor, gifts, and all kinds of deliciousness. Rack up the deals today at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find? Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Everybody, it's Huey Lewis, and I'm your wizard here trying to tell you right now that we're going to go back in time. Bam, 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 we're going to go back in time. What's the power of love? <laughs> What's happening, Jake? Hey, Joe, it's me, your cousin, Marvin Rogan. You know that new <laughs> digitally distributed radio talk show format you've been looking for? Well, listen to this. We're going to go back and so on. I don't get why we got to wear these masks. All right, please. Come on. Can we not make it political? Um, unbelievable. Ladies and gentlemen, we are here to tell uh, the story. Jeez, uh, Doc. Oh, man. We're, we're in a different time. I don't get it. What do you mean? You built you a mean? time machine out of a DeLorean? Oh, I'm amazed. Wow. I'm, I'm amazing in the Adams family, but this is a different episode of Wizard of the Bruiser, so we'll talk about that as well. Oh, crap. My mom's hot. Oh, jeez. She wants to fuck me real bad. Oh, no. I'm the most innocently horny lady I've ever seen in your life. Oh, my loins. My loins. It's my brother. It's my sister. It's my brother. It's my sister. <laughs> And I'm uh, Crispin Glover. I'm a human. Crispin Glover, normal human. <laughs> That's my Crispin Glover impression because he's a normal human. It is a fun one today. I love Back to the Future. This will be our part one because we are we we knew we had to do the trilogy. And I hit up Jake a couple days ago. I was just like, ah, I think we just should do the first movie in this first episode, and then we'll do part two and three. Uh, Hold in, in a what do you second mean? Second episode. What do you mean trilogy? This is a classic septology because yeah, you got the three movies, but then there's the video game and the animated series and the comic series, and of course the canonical Universal Studios ride. If anything, Absolutely. Back to the Future is uh, more than just a couple of movies. It's a Gilgameshian epic beyond the scope that can be contained in mere limited cinema. We're gonna go back in time. <laughs> Every time I you put me up against a wall and I have no idea what to say, I'm just gonna go back to doing Huey Lewis. And just, Don't need a credit card to ride, ride this train. train. Uh, but you do need a flex capacitor. But we'll talk about that in uh, episode two when we cover Back to the Future Part Three. But either way, I will also say this about the whole situation. Okay, this movie had me throwing on a little album called Sports. By Huey Lewis in the News the other day. I mean, I am all about. I just realized, like, I love Huey Lewis in the News, and I unabashedly so. 
and I love the. Hold uh, in. You're 37. You're film. not. You're that's. You're not like it's crazy. I love Huey Lewis. Like you're a 37 year old white right. guy. Like it's yeah. your birthright to love Huey Lewis. And I, I like Wilco, but only the later albums. <laughs> and Huey Lewis and the News. Those are the two. And Bruce Springsteen and that E Street Band. I mean, you can't. What What's better than Born to Run? I'll tell you what's better than Born to Run. The power of love. <laughs> <laughs> Who are you gonna call? Uh, Ghost bust. Oh shit! Sorry, hey, wrong. Actually, though, uh, <laughs> that's funny you brought that up because he, of course, had to say no to writing a theme for Ghostbusters because he was already working with Zemeckis on Back to the Future. Uh, this is a fun one. Like I said already, I there's you know I think there's stories that people know the whole Eric Stoltz thing, but we're gonna get into the more de- finer details of that. There's certain things that people don't know though, uh, like what the original script had in it what some of the the ideas that they threw around for this movie i mean it definitely is the kind of movie that could have so easily been absolutely horrible this could have been such a like laughable 80s film but it just had all this perfect little kismet of a phenomenal cast fantastic score and soundtrack um the iconic imagery with the delorean with the flames on the road the whole um johnny b good sequence that you just referenced and it's um, almost hilarious racism. Um, <laughs> but such weird... an innocent form of racism, a form yes. of racism that like it would take humanity 30 years to understand even to why. Be like, oh, right. Yeah. That the white man uh, who and it's yeah, the, who stole the music for anyways. But and then we get we are actually the reason for it because of Marty McFly, the name Marty McFly, the skateboard uh, chase, the. Every second of this movie is iconic, and 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 such a big part of the history of film in the '80s, the history of the badass summer blockbuster, and I just love it absolutely. And as you said before we started, this also encapsulates the essentially like one of the biggest sparks of the thriving years of Spielberg, Zemeckis, this Amblin Entertainment, this absolutely incredible powerhouse blockbuster creators i mean i didn't et come out the same year i think so i know like it's back to the future was the first emblem produced movie without spielberg directing yes but et was early in there as well um and and uh kathleen kennedy also producing for with spielberg and you know she ended up with uh disney and marvel and star wars like it's all this this is like a generation of hollywood blockbuster mainline like family entertainment people kind of coming to the forefront with this huge just spark of creativity this movie screams to me the 1980s but at the same time i think you're absolutely right jake oddly enough it is also somehow timeless it is like both the best representation to me of the wild wonderful silly ass 80s and also this film that like just continues to apply to today. But we all want to a go back and do it all over again and make things right. We all want to know what our parents were like in high school and and see them as actual real human beings and not just our parents. We all want to fuck our mom. I don't know about that last part, but either way, I, I think mean, if you things- believe in Freudian psychoanalysis, yes, yes, and absolutely. Only. This script was brave enough to just say there is so much like weird baby logic to this movie. The idea that like 
you know, with the powers of time travel, the most pressing concern is like, oh, no, what if my mommy loves me because <laughs> she's so pretty? Like, is such a weird. That's like what a four year old thinks. That is not like an a adult's thought process. Um, the way that uh, Michael J. Fox himself, like Marty McFly, is such a specific like hero type because he's not like the suavest guy. He's not like a masculine power fantasy He's just a particularly cool boy. He's yeah. just like a Bart Simpson type. And like, yeah. there is nothing a li- like a little boy does not want to be like Arnold Schwarzenegger. Like he wants, he just wants to be a cooler version of himself. He just wants to be Marty McFly. Um, there's so many, the way the script is constructed, the way this movie, uh, almost to the point of it, uh, you know, it's there's a documentary available for free on YouTube called Back in Time. In it, they have interviews with uh, Dan Harmon, one of the creators of Rick and Morty, which was originally Doc and Marty, which was clearly inspired by uh, Back to the Future. But he talks about how from a classic, like, you know, Save the Cat, Joseph Campbell, like storytelling three act, you know, screenwriting laws, Back to the Future should not work. The first third of the movie is all weird exposition. Uh, our main character does not really learn or grow. He just kind of stays a cool boy and then makes the world cooler to fit his needs through like bumbling around. Like there's so much like things about this movie that make it singular and just like under no other circumstances shouldn't work. But the way that everything kind of mirrors and pays off and, you know, scenes that in any other movie would be like dumb exposition that needlessly explained how the time machine worked pays right. off enormously. Cause at the latter half of the movie, everything you've been explained and everything you learned always like works seamlessly together. Like nothing, there's not a line of dialogue that happens in this movie that isn't part of like a setup payoff duality. And it's so fun. It's just a constant dopamine rush as you watch it. And then when going back to what I was talking about was so iconic with the uh, with the uh, tire marks and flames and the DeLorean itself and just the way the whole time machine works is so unique and interesting. But because it is so well established and it is so grounded and it just exactly they don't really explain it that much. It just sort of exists. You accept it. You totally buy it. And then it's also just so cool. Like it's such a cool way to travel through time. Taking this fucking dope sports car you have and to, just yeah, push you it have to, to the floor limit. a sports car you have to yeah, redline a, a cool good sports idea. car it's such a smart idea and so the way that it plays in near future technology that people were excited about in the 80s mixed with the nostalgia of the 50s just hits all of these sweet spots and and it just gives you this like comfortable. I mean, it's such a comfortable movie. In fact, the last time I saw this movie before we did the episode this week, I was putting I, I went through a deep puzzle phase in quarantine and uh, and I realized like, oh, the best thing to do when you're putting puzzles together is watch those movies that you've seen a million times and just feel like home. And so, of course, on that playlist was the first Back to the Future, because that is a film that I can just have on in the background now whenever, wherever. And every single scene is a delight. Every single actor to me is a delight. Just the whole and the way that it just constantly propels forward to its ending, which is one of the best 
Talk about establishing a franchise ending, an ending that makes you more excited to see the sequel than you even realized you would be going into the first movie. Like, well, actually, well, hold it. The, I, the if way, you're about to say the ending's not good, I'm gonna no, no, jump no. The ending's amazing, screen. but as it existed as a setup for a franchise, it's actually kind of fucked. You know, I don't know. It's I'm gonna say right now, Holden, because this was a mind blow for me when we were doing research. There was no intention to make sequels when mm. they finished filming the first one, which the is insane to, to me. be continued that you remember. As a kid, Holden, from when you watched the movie millions of times and you were so hyped, especially as an 80s and 90s baby, being like, oh, man, I can't wait for the sequels. That was added. That's to be continued screen was added only to the VHS home release. It doesn't exist in any other form of the movie. But I will say, even without the to-be-continued screen, the actual ending when he shows up with a flying DeLorean and is like, we have to go back. I mean, come on. It's like, I'm not it's even talking kids. about the TV. It's your kids. And it just makes you go like, and it's flying now. And now we're going to go to the f- future. And it's going to be crazy. I, I mean, remember now- being four years old being like, what does he mean? You don't need roads. It's a car. You do need roads. Oh, my <laughs> God. It's flying. <laughs> so, so good. So perfect. So. Let's get into it. The history of the first film in this fantastic would-be franchise. Uh, and it all begins uh, with the uh, the story of two figures, two key players here, and sort of a third with Spielberg. But you've got Bob Gale and Robert Zemeckis. Two uh, Bob- nerdy Bobs. Bob Gale, uh, as a teen, he created his own comic book called The Green Vomit and founded a comic book club as well with his brother Charlie, who wrote the screenplay for Ernest Scared Stupid, by the way, which is Mm. fun. They made an amateur film series parody of the Commando Cody serials, which I'm not really uh, aware of, but I I can only imagine it's sort of like a live-action G.I. Joe kind of thing. Either way, he received a B.A. in cinema in 1973 at the University of Southern California and wrote reviews for his buddy's fanzine at the time. He also, in college, meets a man named Robert Zemeckis. Let's talk about him. Robert Lee Zemeckis grew up in the south side of Chicago and said of his home life, the truth was that in my family there was no art. I mean, there was no music, there, was, there were no books, there was no theater. The only thing I had that was inspirational was television, and it actually was. Also, who else had nothing? We recently covered somebody who, who grew up in his stepfather's like home in the woods and had no creative oh, Luke outlet. Besson. Luke Besson, that's what it was with the fifth element, which we like just did. That's kind and of Luke amazing. Besson, I, I mean, this is, I love it when patterns like this emerge, when you kind of like get a weird, like uh, super macro view of like how creativity works. Uh, Luke Besson was also influenced by television. Steven Spielberg influenced by television and Zemeckis influenced by television. And really what defined these like new generations of filmmakers was the lessons from television, which relied on like snappy cuts, efficient dialogue, and like kind of trusting the audience to just take in visual information and like run with a plot without having to like kind of linger on too much. It kind of increased the attention, or I'm sorry, it decreased the attention span of the average viewer, but it also followed audiences where they were. And that's why their movies resonated so much harder and like were so much more entertaining than the previous generation of directors that came before them. 
Along with television, Zemeckis was also obsessed with his parents' 8mm film home movie camera, which they would use to film events. He ended up starting to be essentially the director or at least camera op of those events. He would film birthdays. He would film different, you know, Christmas and stuff like that. And then actually, um, wait, is he Jewish? (laughs) Actually, maybe he didn't film Christmas. I don't know. Uh, But either way, he uh, began uh, to actually start filming little narrative pieces as well that he made with his friends that would sometimes include stop motion, special effects, but it really wasn't until he saw the movie Bonnie and Clyde. He uh, decided uh, then that he wanted to go into film school, which his parents were not a fan of. He said, my parents would sit there and say, don't you see where you come from? You can't be a movie director. I guess maybe some of it felt like I had to do things in spite of them too, which uh, yeah, I, I understand that type of motivation. So instead, he uh, so he did end up attending Northern Illinois University. He edited commercials and cut film for NBC News in Chicago on the side. He later transferred to the University of Southern California. And this is where, of course, he meets Bob Gale. Gale said the graduate students at USC had this veneer of intellectualism. So Bob and I gravitated toward one another because we wanted to make Hollywood movies. We weren't interested in the French New Wave. We were interested in Clint Eastwood and James Bond and Walt Disney because that's how we grew up. So I love this idea of these two finding a friendship because all the beret wearing cigarette smoking, like snooty uh, film students were all off in the corner trying to make their art movies. And they were like, fuck this noise. I just want to make the next Mickey Mouse. You know what I mean? I want to I want I want to make the next uh, uh, 007. So they they get together on some screenplays. They wrote two screenplays, in fact, at first called Tank and Bordello of Blood, which is such a weird little factoid. This is one of their first two screenplays that they wrote, and they would, of course, years later, Bordello would get made into a movie in 1996. I believe that's Tales from the Crypt, right? Yeah, uh, Zemeckis... I loved Bordello of Blood. I thought that was... That's a fun-ass horror comedy. Uh, Zemeckis was a producer on the uh, Tales from the Crypt TV show, and uh, throughout Back to the Future, you can see the comic books are all parodies of like EC comics, you know, the mm. Spaceman from Pluto and all that stuff. Check out our EC comics episode if you'd like to know the history of all of that stuff. Which for the 1950s would have been an era appropriate comic for them to be uh, reading. So off of the strength of Zemeckis' student film called A Field of Honor, he approaches Steven Spielberg and shows it to him, which got him in as Spielberg's mentee, who uh, produced his first two films. They were co-written by Bob Gale, and they were called I Want to Hold Your Hand. I Want to Hold Your Hand was like a madcap movie about these kids trying to break into the Ed Sullivan show to see the live taping of the Beatles' first appearance in NYC, and um, that uh, did uh, okay. And then Used Cars, which starred Kurt Russell about a used car dealership. Um, and that again does it. Okay. And then, you know, critics enjoyed them, didn't commercially do well. Weird trivia. Uh, I want to hold your hand starred Mark McClure and Wendy Jo Sperber, who would later be the near useless siblings in Back to the Future. Ha. Um, then after these flop commercially, they write, uh, Spielberg's 1941. Don't worry. They turned it around by being responsible for an even bigger, more expensive flop. Flop. So this is the funny situation they find themselves in. They're awesome 
at selling scripts to studios. They're awesome at getting people like Spielberg to back their projects and get their movies made. I mean, they're killing it in terms of the side of Hollywood that I suck at, which is like selling scripts in rooms and doing this sort of thing. But the product never quite comes over and they get this rep in Hollywood of like, these guys that make these notorious flops that um, are really good at just like working with people within Hollywood. And I mean, so no, they get the repu- the reputation they are terrified of is just being Spielberg's like hanger on buddies, just being like that usurpers too. in the entourage. And uh, Spielberg talks about in lots of interviews how like they would just hang out casually like they were honest to God friends. They would go out into the woods. They would apparently they enjoyed skeet shooting together, which is a weird way to hang out with your homies. But yeah, more, more power to you. Yeah, very bizarre. Um, and so that is why they don't initially approach Spielberg about this back to the future idea that they're st- starting to put together. They uh, it hit a slump professionally in the early 80s. And it is actually Michael Douglas who saves the whole thing and hires Zemeckis to direct a film called Romancing the Stone in 1984. OK, so so this is where things get a little bit interesting. So the uh, they release one more film. Uh, which is called Used Cars, and it's another flop. But for some reason, uh, Frank Price at Columbia Pictures loves the movie, loves Used Cars, and wants to keep them on board, and he demands that they present him with their next script. And so that script is Back to the Future, and it, but it's 1980. Right now. Yeah, that's, this is the timeline. So they have not yet made Romance in the Stone. We're going to take a little step previous. Uh, Bob Gale said, Bob Zemeckis and I had written the three movies together, and we had always wanted to do a time travel story. We just never figured out how. What turned the light on for me was coming across my dad's old high school yearbook and thinking, would we have been friends if we'd been at school together? All of us have that revelation when we understand that our parents were young once, too. That's a big moment. Then there is the message that we all have control over our destinies. I thought we could dramatize those two things. And Zemeckis is the one who added that his mother's stories from back in the day would often be contradictory. And it was very interesting to hear her tell a story and you, you don't know what the truth is unless you were actually there. The so, specific revelation that I remember was Bob Gale saw that his dad was the student council president for his graduating <laughs> class. And he remembered that he fucking hated the student council president of his graduating class. He was bullied by him. He hated all the popular kids. He was this weird nerd. And the, uh, yeah, the kind of shocking moment that was like, oh, I might have, like, I might fucking, I might have fucking hated my dad back in the day. And making what is usually um, uh, a grand, like, you know, everything from Jules Verne, the time machine to... Uh, Avengers Endgame, you know, time travel always has these massive world shattering implications, but just instead making it intensely, almost weirdly personal uh, is kind of what gave this movie a little bit something extra. So they struggled with how to make their protagonist travel through time, noting that it needed to be by accident because they couldn't have the character doing it for personal gain. If it was Marty McFly saying, I'm going to travel back in time and and make my life better or this, that and the other, then 
morally, they felt that that would have to bite him in the ass, whereas they didn't want that to be the case for their protagonist. So at first, it was a more traditional time chamber that was used, which was attached to the back of a truck, as well as an explosion from a nuclear testing site that would power the machine uh, back up to allow him to get back to 1985, which McFly had to drive into. And we'll talk more about how that uh, evolves uh over time this is the original script and i know jake i think you have some good what was in the original script factoids as well so this original script was written in 1980 for uh you know with the they'd always kicked around time travel ideas uh for years beforehand but this was specifically to present to frank price uh at columbia and so uh like you said there is no delorean there is no vehicle time machine they end up being uh, using a highfalutin nuclear-powered time chamber in the past, and then a refri- a lead-lined refrigerator w- and a nuclear test explosion, which is a much more believable source of nuclear energy than just timing a lightning bolt down to the exact second. But whatever, that's uh, good. Um, at the among the well, changes, that was for that was for budget reasons. We'll get right. into that later, but it's because. A giant nuclear explosion was going to maybe cost a little bit of money and be very difficult to film at that at that point in the mid 80s. So this is still 1980. And uh, among the things in the original movie or in the original draft, uh, the the present takes in is 1982, not 1985. Hill Valley, this kind of idyllic, probably California town uh, is only described as a small Midwestern town. Doc Brown is Professor Brown, and he lives in an abandoned Orpheum theater instead of like a weird, dirty garage. I need the Einstein. The dog is not a dog. He is a chimpanzee named Shemp. And that was actually changed because the producer working on the picture was like, monkeys in movies always make them flop. We can't have a monkey in this movie. <laughs> so they changed it to a dog. Uh, he still invents rock and roll. He still does a lot of things. Um, <laughs> the oh, so. Uh, Marty McFly is named uh, Marty Lewis when he needs a uh, pseudonym in the future or in the past uh, because he thinks of Huey Lewis. So, okay, hear me out. One of the greatest mysteries of Back to the Future, one of the biggest like, hey, this doesn't make sense. A conundrum and like oddity so bizarre that like it's one of the oldest jokes about the movie, which is. Why the fuck is this cool skateboarding teenage guitarist friends with a scientist recluse? Yes. And they're just, they just hang out. But I love it. But it's it's so believable because of their chemistry that I never thought twice about it as a kid. The chemistry is so good that this weird plot hole that's thrown out the window in the rough draft of the script, they actually fucking explain it. And the official explanation is that. Marty is more of a streetwise delinquent besides just getting yelled at by a principal for being tardy. He actually runs a black market uh, pirated VHS video operation alongside Professor Brown. And it's because Doc Brown has all these electronic equipments and components that can make the tapes and Marty sells them to the high school kids. And it's a marriage of business and convenience that they actually deal with each other and even meet and converse in the first place. And that's why they hang out is because Marty is stealing movies <laughs> and Doc Brown is his fucking lab guy who gives him his supply. And that Amazing. makes sense. That actually makes sense. One of the first things that the studios got rid of 
was this plot element because they did not want our hero to be a VHS tape pirate. Mm -hmm. Rack your look for spring at Nordstrom Rack and save up to 60% on brands you love. Rag & Bone, Vince, Marc Jacobs, Adidas, Joes, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. Score new dresses, denim, sandals, designer bags, and sunglasses, plus updates for the family and home. Get your spring on for less, up to 60% less, today at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find? Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. There was also uh, another big thing was that when he returns back to his normal time period in the in 1985, uh, the technology was like they, they, much more pushed to the future. They had this like it, they they gave it this like futuristic feel, and and that was another thing that they that people hated about the original script that they end up taking back. All these little things. Another thing that I just want to uh, point out is uh, when they described writing the original script, Gail and Zemeckis uh, describe a giant bulletin board that they would post index cards to. And so every plot element, such as, uh, you know, Marty invents rock and roll, that's something they want to put in the movie. They would make a matching card that says Marty is uh, shows that he loves playing rock and roll and dreams of being a guitarist. Yes. Uh, You know, Marty goes to the future. Marty goes to the past. Like every single plot point was given a setup plot point. And this was built into the script from the very beginning. And really, like I said, the dopamine explosion, the reward center of your brain going off every time one of those little seeds and time bombs that are planted earlier in the movie goes off like, you know, an hour and a half later is such a brilliant little touch. That symmetry just pays off so well that it almost like subverts all the other ways that it deviates from the three act structure and all these like rules of protagonists and antagonists. Um, and have you talked about the serotonin trip that you get from feeling that connection of, oh, I remember that, like connecting those two that's dots. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm, it's, I, I mean, yeah, that's what I'm saying is it's such a novel, dumb game within the movie that it's just, it's really fucking cool. Another um, little thing that reminded me of writing with Henry, actually, they would uh, usually act out the scenes of dialogue mm. to get a good feel of, of a natural flow of dialogue and things like that, which I feel like is a strong point of this film. So, so Frank Price, who's like, we want first, ki- we want a taste of this, immediately leaves Columbia right as they finish the script because uh, Columbia was acquired by, of all companies, Coca-Cola. And he hated having to run all of his studio decisions by a soda company. So Back to the Future as a script is now let loose into the wild west of Hollywood. I will also say, though, this is partly due to the fact that he feels it's too tame, which is funny because of all the incest and everything in the movie. It actually there's a lot of weird undertones of like super not tame. But at the time, all the rage for comedies were raunchy sex stuff like Porky's uh animal house things like this, that there were like this is the same time uh fast times at richmond high is like under production um yeah no this is a very horny era 
for uh, teen comedies. And it's kind of the reason why Amblem Entertainment kind of rocketed so quickly is because they kind of kept churning out these massively appealing yet still family-friendly movies. And so the script gets put into turnaround. The whole project does, that is. And turnaround means, we've talked about it in previous episodes, but it means that they can pitch it to other studios in order for Columbia to recoup its initial investment. It is rejected about 40 times. I think a big issue here is, and it still is kind of the case, time travel movies are a hard sell. They really are. Like, I, it's there's a lot of failed time travel movies out there. At, specifically at this time, uh, Terry Gilliam's Time Bandits just took a massive dump in the box office. Yes. And, like, the red flags were all over the place. There's a monkey in it. I mean, come on. There's just all these problems. Also, uh, they... So, yeah, so at this time, they only really have the support of Spielberg, but they're trying not to go the Spielberg route because they don't want to be known as Spielberg's butt boys. <laughs> so they're trying to sell to these other places. And eventually, my favorite finally, anecdote of this is uh, they, you know, would take it to one studio. They'd be like, this isn't raunchy enough. You know, we want to we want a porkies. If you're going to have like a cool teen comedy, what's all this like wholesome 50s shit? Get it out of here. You should pitch this to Disney. So they take it to Disney and Disney's like, we can't produce this. There's fucking incest in it, you <laughs> sick monsters. This is way too dirty for us. <laughs> yeah, it's just. But what's funny is that means it's the perfect balance to get everybody to go to the theater. But nobody realized it at the time. So uh, Laz Luck would have it. Romancing the Stone is offered to Zemeckis. He makes it. It's a sleeper hit. Danny DeVito's greatest performance. And they get enough clout to make Back to the Future. And they end up going with Spielberg. Because now everybody's knocking down their door to, to make Back to the Future. And they go, you know what? The only person who actually <laughs> supported this project this whole time is Steven Spielberg. So we're actually going to finally make it under his emblem entertainment. So, um, but there are a couple little uh, things at play here. So Amblin is um, a subsidiary, I believe, of Universal, Yes. They, yeah, I think they sell to Universal. They like, or, or, or at least, yeah, they, they, Universal's the distributor of that's, Back to yeah, the Future. That's, that's what it is. So Sidney Scheinberg, president at Universal, he makes himself chief executive of the film, and he wanted to. Uh, one of his first orders of business, he's such an executive, it's like perfect. He does give some he, good. He, he gives some. He's the one that says change Professor Brown to Doc Brown. Doc Brown, make Great. it more relatable. Little little things like that. But um, his big misstep is that he wanted to change the title to. Spaceman from Pluto because okay, he felt the I, original title wouldn't resonate with audiences. I'm sending you through the Discord chat. I have the actual okay. memo from 1984 from Sid Scheinberg. Great. Do you um, want to, so yeah, do you want to explain this little anecdote? Two, uh, two Bob Zemeckis, Bob Gale, and Steven Spielberg from Sid Scheinberg from MCA Interoffice Memorandum. Uh, October 17th, 1984. I, though I do believe the present draft is terrific and I marvel at the improvements that have been made from the Columbia version, I continue to believe the title leaves much to be desired. There are a number of reasons why I found the title less than wonderful, but my primary concern is that it appears to make the picture a genre picture. I think the script and the film deserve a better title. Now that I've buttered you up, I would suggest considering the title Spaceman from Pluto. That Already, sounds like what the way more, that, that sounds uh, like a much more obtuse genre movie. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all you would have to do is uh, modify the dialogue, and he points out every page in the script where you just need to like uh, change something to Spaceman from Pluto to make it a through line through the movie. 
Um, I am sure there will be those who would argue that the movie will appear to the audience as a cheap, old-fashioned sci-fi flick. Nonsense. I think it's the kind of title that has heat, originality, and projects fun. Yada, yada, yada. Uh, Sidney Sheinberg. Um, Famously, Bob Gale revealed that Steven Spielberg wrote a memo back that said, Hi, Sid. Thanks for your most humorous memo. We all got a big laugh out of it. Keep them coming. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it is. uh, uh, And so he was so embarrassed to say uh, that actually wasn't a joke memo. That was for real that uh, he just did never responded and let it fly. Uh, Another weird thing is uh, the name of Marty's mom was changed to Lorraine to honor Lorraine Gary, who is the wife of, uh, or yeah, the wife Sheinberg's of, wife. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which is a weird choice, but either way, uh, yeah, that's Sheinberg. We'll hear from him. I believe again, before this episode's over, let's talk about what I call the Stoltz dilemma. I think this bum, is one bum, of the bum, biggest bum, bum, facts bum, 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 bum. that people know about back to the future is that they cast, uh, method actor, Eric Stoltz, to perform as Marty McFly. They shoot for several weeks with him in the role and then end up replacing him. So here's the the story behind all that. There were many folks up for the role uh, for Marty McFly, such as John Cusack, Johnny Depp, Charlie Sheen. There were so many actors. Those just a few of them. Big names. Uh, but Gail and Zemeckis, they did initially want Michael J. Fox. That was their first pick. And the only reason why it didn't initially go down like that was that Fox was on a big hit sitcom called Family Ties. And at, at, at that time, and Gary David Goldberg, the Fox exec that was given the script of Back to the Future by Spielberg to give to Michael J. Fox was not actually given to him by Goldberg. And that was because he didn't want to lose him from the sitcom. There was already somebody else that was on leave from the sitcom, a different actor. So he already felt a little handicapped by that. He didn't want to lose another one. And they had no about idea about this. And so they just thought maybe Fox wasn't interested. And Sidney Sheinberg then wanted Eric Stoltz, which is hilariously enough because he had recently, uh, Stoltz had recently made waves in the 1985 film Mask. And the reason why I say it's hilarious is because right now for pop history, Essentially, the sister podcast to this one, uh, we are doing an, our episode on Cher, who famously stars in the film Mask. And they actually ended up having a love affair at some point in the 80s as well. So I have been seeing the name Eric Stoltz so much right <laughs> this week. And it's like blowing my mind how much I know about Eric Stoltz's career in 1985 at this point. But either way, they get Stoltz. He, Scheidenberg even promises them if they, if they don't like Stoltz's work, on the film, they could reshoot it. And of course, as history would have it, they did exactly that six weeks into shooting. Side, and it's a side mirror anecdote. Uh, Claudia Wells, who played, uh, you know, Jennifer, Jen, Jennifer, uh, Marty's girlfriend, who was then replaced by Elizabeth Shue in the, in the sequels, was also supposed to be cast in uh, Back to the Future Part 1 originally but couldn't because she also had a commitment to a sitcom that had been picked up from a pilot. And so she couldn't make it. So uh, playing Jennifer is another actress in this version named Melora Hardin, who uh, just to finish her story is then fired and replaced by Claudia Wells because Claudia's uh, contract with the sitcom is up and Melora is way too tall to stand next to 
uh, Michael J. Fox in any of the movie. It's like comical. She just towers above our little cool prince. Yeah, it's just not working. Bob Gale even said the humor just hadn't been coming through with Eric. Eric Stoltz himself even said apparently to the makeup lady at one point, like, I don't understand why I was cast in this role. This is a comedic role. Zemeckis was the person who had the shitty job uh, that was firing Stoltz. Had to take him off to the side. By the way, they they filmed for like a, a few days at least, like a week what? or something. Are you are you kidding me? They filmed for seven weeks with Eric. Well, I know Stoltz. they filmed for seven weeks, but I'm they. But for I was uh, alluding to the amount of time that they filmed, knowing they were going to replace Stoltz. I think that was uh. even like uh, at least a couple days of filming where they would even not get reverse shots of Stoltz. They'd be like, "You guys don't want to get the reversal shot of Stoltz for this scene between him and Doc Brown," and they're like. Now we got it. Interesting. <laughs> so some people were cued into it up until then, but apparently when they broke the news to the crew that they were going to have to refilm and replace Stoltz, the crew was behind it. I think everybody knew it just wasn't quite working out. But Zemeckis did say that the firing of Stoltz was, quote, the hardest meeting I've ever had in my life, and it was all my fault. I broke Stoltz's heart. It's kind of interesting because uh, Stoltz, you're, you're not just lying or like exaggerating when you said it was a method actor. He demanded yeah. that people call him Marty on set. Like, And he, 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 I was about to go and launch in it. However, do not feel too sad about it. He apparently was pretty annoying to the cast and crew. He also like, he ate lunch alone in his trailer. When Michael J. Fox gets on set, he eats with the cast and crew. He clearly is just a more, a warmer human being to work with, especially in this comedic film. He also, there's a story that he, being Mr. Method actor, he and Tom Wilson, who played Biff Tannen, uh, they had a scene together where he has to push Biff in the cafeteria, and he just kept pushing Tom Wilson with all of his might over and over again. Wilson asking him, please stop pushing me with all of your might. Can you please just fake it a little bit? But he's no, he's method. Ended up bruising his collarbone really badly. Tom Wilson actually had plans to get back at him in the in a, net, a later fight scene that was going to be shot, but he never got his uh, comeuppance. I guess he did technically get back at him because he was fired. So, so for a method actor to play Marty McFly, for someone who's like in the role, what you're going to get is like a darkness because this is like yeah. a child of poverty from a really fucked up home life with like a, del you know, an uncle in jail and a del and delinquent siblings and a literal browbeaten dad who has to live yeah. with his like wife's rapist. Like everything's fucking crazy. And uh, according to Zemeckis, he says that on their first day shooting with Michael J. Fox, they filmed uh, out in the parking lot and uh, with the, you know, when they revealed the DeLorean and uh, Michael J. Fox delivers the line. You're telling me you built a time machine out of a DeLorean? Like that level of like affable, like fish out of water, like, you know, overwhelmed, like relatability. Whereas I can easily imagine Eric Stoltz being like, listen, fucker, you're telling me you built a, a time machine out of a DeLorean. Like, yeah, he just, just didn't have the aloofness. He didn't have the the, the sloppiness. Of, so I think that's what makes M Marty so endearing is that, yes, he's a cool teen, but he's also like a disaster. He's <laughs> he's all over the place. He's unhinged, you know, and in, in these funny ways that make him, I think, so relatable to people who were in high school who felt exactly like he comes off in, in this film. A little background. Uh, or are we gonna, I was going to give a little background on Michael J. Fox and get into the oh, casting. Canada's best kid. 
Great. Uh, yeah, he grew up in Canada. He moved around a lot uh, in that time. His mother was an actress, and at 15 years old, he started in a Canadian TV series called Leo and Me. And at 18, he moved to L.A. and was soon discovered and made his television debut in the made-for-TV movie Letters from Frank. He then gets two feature film roles with the comedy Midnight Madness and the action thriller Class of 1984 before landing the role of, quote, young Republican Alex P. Keaton on the show Family Ties. This show runs for seven seasons. It starts in 1982, hence it's filming while this movie ends up being filmed. More on that in just a second. And he essentially stole the show as his parents were actually supposed to be the main characters. It was supposed to be like hip parents, lame kids, right? He urkled, and the, he urkled the place be, up. He urkled the whole thing. He was such a hit that he ends up being the focal point of the show, starting with the fourth episode, I believe, or, at, or right after the fourth episode. Gail said... Scheduling became quite complicated because Michael was doing his TV series Family Ties during the days. Then we'd get him from 6 p.m. and work him with him through until 1 or 2 in the morning. He was young, so he could go without much sleep. He was a real champ. We'd work around him. In the McFly's dinner scene early in the film, everyone else gets two shots, but Michael is seen in close-up because his shots had to be done separately. On weekends, scheduling was pushed back even further uh, since Family Ties shot in front of a live studio audience in the early evening, so Fox wouldn't finish filming until 7 a.m. A Teamster actually recalls literally carrying Fox from the uh, van to his bed in his home on some shoot days because he was so passed out from working. I mean, just unreal. This, uh, in uh, the behind-the-scenes DVD documentary that you can find on YouTube... Michael J. Fox describes at one point they used a station wagon that had a full-size bed outfitted in the back. And Michael J. Fox would, like, finish taping uh, on the family, climb into the back, sleep as they just drove his unconscious body to the film set. He'd do his work for Back to the Future. He'd, like, crawl back into the station wagon. They'd shuttle his unconscious body back to Los Angeles and then, like, someone would carry him to bed, and he'd just keep it going. He was 22 it's, at the time. It's 22. That's, I don't think you could even do that past 25. I mean, that is just absolutely insane. Uh, Supposedly, there were, there's still two shots of Stoltz still in the final movie. Yes. Uh, one is a quick shot of uh, Marty diving behind the DeLorean when the Libyans arrive. If you pause it, you can see it's not quite... It could be just be a stuntman. It's in dispute. And another one is an over-the-shoulder shot of uh, when Marty sucker punches Biff in the diner. And uh, Tom Wilson claims that he doesn't remember shooting that reverse shot with Michael J. Fox. And he claims that it's uh, Stoltz's fist. And the footage of Stoltz, which again, seven weeks of filming, pretty much and the first half of the entire movie, uh, that footage still exists. And supposedly the Stoltz cut could be released like on some anniversary mega, I don't know, whenever they make virtual reality movies and they need another like bonus to entice people to buy it again. Um, but so yeah, tons of scenes of where you see Michael J. Fox out in Hill Valley, uh, stuff like the manure chase scene with the skateboard. All of that is footage they shot with Stoltz. And then they just kind of cut in Michael J. Fox for the coverage. It's like very interesting. A ton of the, his early days filming was just him alone. Several actors were up for the role of Doc Brown, including Jeff Goldblum, Gene Hackman, John Cleese, and John Candy. However, producer Neil Canton suggested John Lithgow, since he worked with him on the film Buckaroo Banzai. 
uh, which is not the first uh, last time you're going to hear the words Buckaroo Banzai for me, by the way. Shout out to Buckaroo Banzai. That movie rules. Lithgow was unavailable for the role, however, so the role was offered to another actor from Buckaroo Banzai. Now it'd be Christopher Lloyd. Lloyd started out working on and off Broadway in NYC starting in the early 60s and got his big break in film with 1975's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and in TV with his role on the sitcom Taxi, before eventually landing Doc Brown, which ended up being, I think, the role he's most known for at this point even, though uh, we talked about him, of course, also in our Adams Family episode. Leah Thompson studied ballet as a girl and danced professionally by the age of 14, and after being told she didn't have the right body type to join the main company at the American Ballet Theater, she decided to stop wasting her time and switch over to acting. What a weird, like, what a weird thing to be like, I'm sorry, you're just, you're too slamming. It's just rocking. <laughs> your body is just too rocking for this art form. You, you just have to have such a specific body type, which is something you have no control over, really, in order to do ballet. So, yeah, it is just that's the way it is. I, I don't blame her. I think that's very smart of her to do that. Her first film was Jaws 3D in 1981. But her big breakout was, of course, as Lorraine McFly in Back to the Future. She got this role based on the film The Wildlife. The, the filmmakers actually stole. Uh, I'm sorry, Gail and Zemeckis. They ended up watching The Wildlife because they were researching Eric Stoltz at the time, seeing if he would be right for Marty McFly and noticed uh, Leah Thompson, who also is in that movie. Crispin Glover is the son of an actor father and dancer mother, moved at an early age from New York City to Los Angeles, and began acting professionally at the age of 13, appearing in TV shows like Happy Days and films like Friday the 13th, The Final Chapter. Bob Gale said that he, quote, was really something. Nuts is a good description. A lot of those mannerisms were actually his. He had to be reined in occasionally. The hardest thing was getting him to act like a completely normal person for the final scenes of the movie. <laughs> I love Crispin Glover so much. There's uh, uh, Michael J. Fox talks about working with Crispin Glover and like his performance as George McFly is very weird. He is a very uh, he's making a a lot of bold choices. It would be such a boring role played by anyone else, but he makes it interesting because it's him. I mean, it totally subverts the like cool guy teaches the nerd like about shit because it's not just like, oh, I like space figurines it's like no you are a you walk weird you stutter (laughs) you peep on girls like you're just a disaster yeah (laughs) there was a scene where like uh before he gets hit by the car where he's walking into the street where uh in one take he's just flailing wildly and like uh michael j fox stops crispin glover and he's like what are you doing and crispin glover just turns him and goes it's a rush of indignation. (laughs) (laughs) Cool. Okay. And definitely, I always recommend watching his uh, getting kicked off of the Letterman show. It is fantastic. Uh, So go check that out on YouTube. It is so bizarre. There's another character in this film, one who's just as important as Crispin Glover. Dare I say more so. Actually, no, we got to get to Tom Wilson first. Tom Wilson's actually... Oh, okay, I thought that's who you were teeing me up for. Tom Wilson was cast for the role of Biff Tannen. He was up with uh, against some other really great actors, but he gets the role because he is the most physically intimidating uh, next to old Michael J. Fox. He moved to L.A. to pursue acting in 1981. He shared an apartment during that time with aspiring comedians Andrew Dice Clay and Yakov Smirnoff, 
And besides a minor film and TV role, this really was his first big movie and becomes the movie he is, of course, most known for to a comedic degree. He ends up writing a song about all the questions that he answers. Uh, He is actually a very funny uh, road comic who does like guitar comedy. And I know it's like cool to hate on guitar comedy. Fuck it. I love guitar comedy. And one of his big like bang out closer bits is a song called The Question, where he talks about what it was like, uh, how people approach him as Back to the Future fans. Uh, Mary, could you just play a couple of uh, bars from The Question? Because it's delightful. When I'm flying in a plane or I'm on the street, there's a lot of friendly people that I like to meet. They shake my hand but never ask my name And they start asking questions that are always the same Hey, what's Michael J. Fox like? He's nice What's Christopher Lloyd like? Kinda quiet What's Crispin Glover like? Unusual Stop asking me the question Now I think I know what this last actor that you want to get to is But I'll let you, uh, I'll let you commit to the bit What you got for me? Realizing they couldn't do that dumbass uh, refrigerator bit. I knew it! (laughs) They needed to make it a vehicle. And having already written the line where the kid named Sherman at Peabody Ranch, Peabody and Sherman, ha ha ha, yes, we all get the reference, um, goes, it looks like a spaceship. They started trying to figure out what car that could be, and they settle on the DMC DeLorean. Yes. Also, quick side note about not going with the refrigerator on the back of the truck. It's it's kind of funny because Spielberg is the one who objected to that because he didn't want to give kids the idea of getting into a refrigerator, which is kind of hilarious if you consider uh, Crystal Skull, that terrible (laughs) Indiana Jones movie. And one of its funniest parts is when Indiana Jones hides in a uh, refrigerator to avoid a nuclear explosion, which, by the way, was going to be the conceit of the end of Back to the Future. Therefore, the original script of Back to the Future is actually the prototype for Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, Indiana Jones, part four. Hop, hop, hooray. Nordstrom Rack's got sweet deals on everything Easter, which is Sunday, March 31st. Get to Nordstrom Rack now and save on Kate Spade, New York, Two-Faced, Steve Madden, Calvin Klein, and more from just $30. Score great brands and great prices on Easter looks for everyone, plus spring decor, gifts, and all kinds of deliciousness. Rack up the deals today at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find? Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The DMC DeLorean is a work of motor art. Envisioned is by... It? <laughs> it's genuinely a beautiful car. Um, the stainless steel outer cladding never rusts. There are still... Uh, it's actually a factory and workshop in Houston, Texas, that has all the original factory parts, and they come out like new because they chose stainless steel as the outside. The distinctive gullwing doors, the wedge shape, that sports car rear engine kind of roar at your back as you drive it. It was the dream of John DeLorean and his DeLorean Motor Company, a former bigwig, the rock star of Detroit in the 60s and 70s, the youngest executive to claw his way to the top of a big motor company, but he wanted more. 
He wanted his own name. He does, fuck GMC. I want the DMC. And so he hired Italian car design legend, Giorgetto Gigiaro, and using a bunch of fucked up uh, backroom deals to get a taxpayer-funded factory made for him in Northern Ireland, of all places, he starts producing these cars for about $68,000 in today's dollars. It's not very fast. Uh, He quickly runs out of money, and he um, gets busted uh, in a very, uh, very uh, fucked up cocaine bust. Because he gets a call from an investor that says, like, hey, I'm going to help you save your fledgling uh, House of Cards car company. Uh, All you have to do is help me move this cocaine. And he got busted for that because it was an FBI trap. Wow. He then is uh, pronounced – he's eventually pronounced not guilty because it was entrapment. Uh, But – just in the popular – there were, like, 9,000 of these cars that ever successfully made it off the line. And it would have been forgotten to history if it wasn't for the, honestly, arbitrary choice of this car. I mean, not completely arbitrary. I get it. The way the the doors open and everything, they just wanted it to freak out a 50s farm family. And, And the look of it is the most futuristic look, I think, of any car out in the market during that time. Though I will say um, the other funny thing about it is, of course, they had a myriad of issues with the manufacturing of the the car. They had to have four different recalls by the factory to correct different problems. This is an excerpt from Wikipedia. Other quality issues included other problems surrounding the front suspicion, clutch pedal adjustment or lack thereof, brake rotors, instruments, In particular, the speedometer, power door locks, and weak alternators. Many early DeLoreans were delivered poorly aligned with the toe and incorrectly set, leading to premature tire wear. There was just so many problems. Oh, a great problem is uh, it was full of space-age digital electronics that were, you know, making it the car of the future. But they didn't wire the battery correctly so that the electronics would drain uh, constantly, even while the car was off leaving DeLorean owners constantly stranded wherever they parked for any prolonged period of time. And it's so funny. So I I went down a big uh, comedians and cars getting coffee hole recently. And Seinfeld always picks up the different comedians in a different car that he feel like signifies like the comedian who they are. So on the Patton Oswalt episode, he picks them up in a DeLorean and wouldn't you know it, about halfway to the coffee shop, it breaks down. And it is so funny. And they even literally say, well, that's the story of the DeLorean right there. It's so perfect. The They had so many. It's such a compromised dream that uh, the windows only open halfway. If you look at the side door of a DeLorean, it has that little like trapezoid in the window. And only that part lowers because... If they put in a bigger window motor, the gullwing doors wouldn't open <laughs> all the way. They would, like, slam down on you by accident. Um, while filming, they had uh, three key DeLoreans. Uh, one was called the Hero Car. This was DeLorean A, which had the most uh, details and the most, like, care put into it. And that was for close-up shots and, uh, you know, where the car was still and, like, really, you know, kind of lingering on all the cool shit on the car. Uh, DeLorean B was used for stunt driving and it was less, you know, it had less shit on it. It was less detailed. And then DeLorean C was the process car, which they purposely built 
to just chop up any which way they could for all the internal shots. Michael J. Fox talks about how he hated filming in the car because it was constantly getting redlined and constantly being worked way too hard. And he always thought it was going to explode while he was driving it. Uh, He also uh, kept banging his hands and getting cuts on his knuckles because there's all those just sharp metal boxes where they added the electronics that are right where the gear shift is. So he would just slam his hand into the props. And going off of that, uh, the producers wanted it to look like the time machine elements of the Dorian had been built in a garage by Doc Brown using parts found in a hardware and electronics store, and also that it had to look dangerous. They brought on Ron Cobb, that he was the artist that helped illustrator Andrew Probert conceive of a prototype. Lawrence Paul oversaw the production, and Michael Fink was brought on as the art department liaison that oversaw the actual construction of the car. And together, they create this stuff, and specifically, most notably, of course, the flux capacitor. The flux capacitor came from Michael Fink, actually, who learned about neutron flux from his work on the film The China Syndrome, which deals in nuclear power plant safety cover-ups. It is a scientific measurement that applies to nuclear physics. Another thing, also, um, the speedometer is a funny bit because uh, they are, they almost seemingly arbitrarily they claim that it's because they felt it looked cool on a speedometer. Needed- it looked cool, and then it was easy to remember because again, so much of this movie is about remembering details and having it pay off later. So eighty-eight is the speed they need to hit in order for the DeLorean to time travel. But the DeLorean itself speedometer doesn't go past eighty-five. A fact that was actually first brought up to us by Entrapment, friend of the show. Thank you, Entrapment. Um, and so they actually had to create. Um, I believe that they created like a fake speedometer. Uh, that would simulate, yeah, that would sim- uh, they made a custom speedometer to simulate the 88 miles per hour they needed to travel through time. Uh, While the- we're pointing out arbitrary things that are wrong with uh, the movie, um, <laughs> it's pronounced gigawatts. It's 1.21 gigawatts, but Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gale, at one point during the screenwriting process, uh, consulted with like a science professor that they knew, and he pronounced it gigawatts, and they just <laughs> took him at his word. And so they corrected... Christopher Lloyd be like, no, 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 it's gigawatts. That's amazing. The Flying DeLorean was a combination of live action footage, animation, and a one to five scale model that was filmed in front of a blue screen that had to be constructed. There was a lot of debate over how the actual time travel would look. And eventually they landed on the effects that strike the front of the car to create an explosion that opens the time slice along with practical effects, including smoke, sparks, and flash bulbs. But it is an interesting thing. So I didn't get into the dirty details in my notes, but I did read quite a bit about how that was a big point of discussion was like, what would it look like? Is a warp hole going to open up? Are we going to like see the past inside of the warp hole and it's going to drive through it? Is it going to, you know what I mean? Is it going to be this, that? The flames actually were supposed to happen as the car was going, but they ended up, um, I, I believe they, they, what was the reason why they couldn't, they couldn't make that happen, so it, the flames ended up just being something that they used uh, in the after shots, and they sped up the mm. shot of the flames because it was a lot slower looking than that, and they added smoke. It is minor creative kudos to actually foregoing the, like, dumb middle ground shot where, like, there's a clock spinning and, like, E equals M ski yeah. squared floats by, and just being like, no, if it's a time machine, you're just there. Why would, it, and, and why would you I, enter a dumb... The, like I said, they wanted to make the car look dangerous and they wanted it to feel violent. They wanted it to mm-hmm. feel dramatic, like it was being thrust into this other time as opposed to this like 
kind of Woo. more psychedelic, kind of wavy gravy type of thing. Oh yeah, by the way, it was because the uh, the gas jet mechanism kept failing when they were trying to shoot it. So those flames were supposed to happen like to start the time travel sequence, but instead ended up being what was left behind because they had a, a mechanism failure. Either way, I think the funniest thing is that a stuntman in a dog suit replaced Doc's dog for the shots in the moving car. So look for a guy in a dog suit during those shots that the dog is inside the moving car. Supposedly a uh, modern day DeLorean owner um, did go to the parking lot where they filmed the uh, initial DeLorean scene. And uh, there is not enough room in the parking lot for a DeLorean to hit 88 miles per hour to mm. begin with. <laughs> so someone better have gotten fired for that fuck up. Back to the Future, everything's wrong. Either way, principal photography lasted for 22 weeks, starting at the end of 1984 on a budget of 14 million. Of course, with the firing of Stoltz, they lost 34 days of filming, which cost an additional four million dollars. Uh, G- Dean Cundy, who is the director of photography for Zemeckis, he also did Romancing the Stone, said, Romancing the Stone had been a very muddy, arduous shoot, so Back to the Future was simple in comparison. Most of it was shot on the lot at Universal or in neighborhoods in Pasadena. Zemeckis kept the schedule tight, including having the film be edited as they were shooting it. The editor was Arthur Schmidt, who found his job to be quite difficult since he had to imagine where the special effects would be later with no time for re-edits. The, uh, as I'm, as Cundy mentioned about a lot of it being shot at the Universal lots, it was because it's very expensive to 50s of actual locations, but they could shoot on the lot where they could much more easily do that, make it look like the 1950s. Um, the clock tower is on the Universal lot. Uh, they also did use a miniature as well. Funny story. The, uh... The Hill Valley uh, courthouse and that main square is used in a lot of different movies, but the original courthouse with the clock tower uh, burned down in the 90s when it was, ironically enough, struck by lightning. There were definitely several scenes cut from the film, such as uh, one in which Doc ogles an issue of Playboy, remarking that the future does look better. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's like thank god right and the one scene that they kept in that they uh that tested well even though they wanted to cut it out was actually the johnny b good stuff but people liked it enough now the only reason why they wanted to cut it was because this script was so tight and mm-hmm. it was the only thing in the script that didn't further the plot in some way didn't develop the characters in some way which just is a just a great it's a great script this, this it's this thing. There is one. It's literally my favorite line in all of movie history is, <laughs> hey, it's me, your cousin, Marvin Berry. You know that new <laughs> sound you've been. Li- I use it it's all so the funny. time for so many dumb things. It's I so do, good. It's such a dumb conceit. Like, hey, Steve, it's me, your cousin, Marvin Jobs. You know that new phone design you've been looking for? Just every dumb. Like, it's such a silly. It's so funny. Ass dumb thing. It's so funny and stupid, and I love it so much. Hey, Donald, it's me, your cousin, Marvin Trump. <laughs> you know that new dystopia you've been looking at? <laughs> well, listen to this. Um, so the makeup was done by Ken Chase. He was hired to do the aging makeup for the cast, and he found it to be quite a, a, a quite more difficult than a lot of his other jobs just because a lot of his other jobs were larger-than-life makeup. He did Planet of the Apes. He did The Thing. But since the changes need to be these subtle little changes to realistically age these younger actors, 
He just found it to be a quite a, quite a difficult task. He made plaster molds. He sculpted the effects over them using latex, and he did a phenomenal job. The jowls on Lorraine, the um, you know Crispin Glover's great makeup job for Past and Future. I mean, they really killed. I, it I will sure. say now, it, watching it as a kid. Doc Brown was like the quintessential old man in a movie. Like no yeah. one could possibly be older than Doc Brown in Back to the Future. This is the oldest man possible. Again, this is like five-year-old logic. And the watching it now, and it's Christopher Lloyd was 47 at the time. He's not, he was like a youngish, you know, he's not an yeah. old man yet. Yeah. And like he clearly just has some like plastic wrinkles taped to his neck and face. And I was like, oh my God. Oh, this is so, like it, it's like it was like finding out Santa Claus wasn't real. <laughs> I felt so betrayed. In terms of special effects, they got industrial light and magic, of course. And uh, that was under the supervision of Ken Ralston and Kevin Pike. Ralston's first big gig was a, as an assistant cameraman on the miniature and optical effects unit for the first Star Wars film and was special effects supervisor on Star Trek II: The Wrath of Khan, which Jake, we have to do Wrath of Khan at some point. I think oh, we should try great. to do that this year. Pike's career began with Jaws and Close Encounters of the Third Kind in the 70s. So these are heavy hitters by this point in terms of special effects. At the time, ILM was actually working on The Goonies and Cocoon and gave priority to the former as it had the earlier release date. So kind of like Michael J. Fox... ILM was in the same situation. They talked about their crazy work hours, their crazy crunch, because they're working on multiple films at once, doing amazing effects for each. Universal, oh, this is where I'll bring this up, is I think this is why the editor was editing it as they were shooting it. It was actually because of the fact that the movie was became such a promising thing, like the, the early versions of it were testing so well that they ended up moving up the release date, so their nine-and-a-half-week schedule turned into eight weeks Overnight, because they wanted it to put it in the theater early to give it more time to play in the theater to make more money. And that was added so much more pressure and crunch to the editors, to the uh, ILM guys. In fact, they regret some of the effects in the film, feeling they were too rushed, specifically Marty's hand fading at the dance. They felt just did not look how they wanted it to. They had to. They had to enlarge the hand. They had to do. The I don't hand think it looks is that so bad. Near, it doesn't look. It looks off. It does look yeah, off. It, looks it does off. look very stylized. It looks like but, old effects. It looks like yeah, for but sure. It deliver. It hits that much because it looks so off. The like darkness and the implications of you know like oh no Marty's about to get blooped out of existence is kind of like it kind of hits that much harder because of it. The lightning bolt was animated, uh, the lightning bolt that hits the clock was animated by Wes Takahashi's animation department at ILM. He also, I believe, animated those effects that you see hit the car as it's mm -hmm. about to travel through time. He served as animation supervisor for The Goonies, Willow, and The Abyss, among many other big blockbuster films before moving over to Peter Jackson's Weta Digital Studio. And I miss that hand-animated lightning, man. Yeah, like super cool. And it's huge. Somebody said of it, like, that's the biggest lightning strike in movie <laughs> history. It is great. It's very dramatic and fun and, and all hand illustrated, uh, interestingly enough. All right. We got to go back in time. I'm so, ready to talk about the music. Oh, yeah, yeah. Let's talk about it. Because what, were you, what were you about to bring I was up? just going to say that uh, because of the time crunch um, and because of just the way uh, Huey Lewis and the news and their label and the whole deal with Universal was working out, the power of love was released before the movie and it was a huge hit. So uh, the music video had clips from the movie and it just like 
created even more hype for Back to the Future. Like people were foaming at the mouth to get a load of this. You know, it was starring Michael J. Fox, the sitcom boy of our dreams. Like everything about it was just screaming like, oh, this is going to be a grand slam. Yeah, I think just just like how I feel like Huey Lewis and the News's greatest album they put out, which is called Sports, is like the <laughs> ultimate 80s album. You know, maybe you could make an argument for like Genesis or something like that, but I just feel like sports is so the 80s. And, and based off the success of that, they approach Huey Lewis to write a theme song for the film. Huey Lewis is very reluctant at first. He's, he doesn't know, he's never done that before. He, it's not really his bag. But um, they really wanted him to write, and he also just didn't want to write a song called Back to the Future. Zemeckis told him he could write any song he wanted, so he ends up submitting just the very next song that he had written at the time, which was The Power of Love. Zemeckis uh, does claim, though, that he did reject one song before he submitted Power of Love, but who knows. And later he gives uh, Zemeckis back in time. So those two that's why there's two Huey Lewis songs. The first one was just the song that he had on deck, and then he actually went, and uh, because Zemeckis prodded and prodded and prodded him. He actually wrote a song specifically for Back to the Future. Another fun little tidbit, Eddie Van Halen performed the guitar riff that Marty plays to uh, wake George as Darth Vader at that one point to convince him to uh, stand up for himself. It was supposed to be a just a regular Van Halen song, but they couldn't work with the label to get the rights to it. Apparently so. the rest of the band didn't want to do it. So it was just Eddie Van Halen who was like, fuck it, I'll do it. I don't care. And uh, made to the specific uh, riff for it. And he says, it, uh, looking back on it, it's just noise. <laughs> <laughs> and Fox also was taught how to play Johnny B. Good on guitar for his scenes. He also underwent choreography training for the rock out moments to uh, portray different famous rock and roll people at the time. And uh, I believe he also had, was given skateboarding lessons as well. But uh, I think I've read that somewhere. But either way. And then there's also the score, which is incredible. I mean, it's just so iconic. The score was composed by Alan Silvestri who worked with Zemeckis previously on Romancing the Stone, and the only direction Zemeckis gave him was, quote, it's got to be big. He sought out to create a heroic theme using a big orchestral score to be instantly recognizable in just a few notes, and I think he absolutely fulfilled that. I mean, everybody knows that score from its mm -hmm. very first few notes. Dun, 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 dun. So I just, anyway, even just like that kind of whimsical twinkle that like goes throughout the movie. Yes, it's, yeah, it's iconic. It's great. Kills it with that. So yeah, I mean that's that's the music. I mean, just such a perfect combination. I mean, that's everything: the special effects, the music, the cast, this airtight script. These all these iconic moments just come together and make this massively huge blockbuster hit that releases on July third, nineteen eighty five. It finishes number one at the box office opening weekend and kept coming back again and again as the number one film. It did better in its second week, which is just a huge sign of strong word of mouth. Even when movies would beat it out at the blockbuster one weekend, it would come back as number one the next weekend because people just kept going to see this movie. And obviously it then just does amazingly on VHS as well. Among the various tidbits left over in my notes is... Uh during the London premiere, uh, Princess Di and uh, Prince Charles appeared uh, for the premiere. Uh, Michael J. Fox describes a harrowing incident where he was given strict instructions that you cannot talk to the royals unless spoken to first. You can never turn your back on the royals. Do not touch the royals. 
and he sat down to watch the movie. Princess Die sits down next to him and he immediately realizes he has to pee. But there is no way for him to initiate a conversation with her or tap her on the shoulder or do anything to get her to get up for him. So he just describes a excruciatingly painful two hours as his bladder is fit to burst next oh to God. who at the time for him was literally the hottest woman on earth. Oh my he God. also recalls that uh, Prince Charles and Lady Di burst out laughing during the manure scene and that gave <laughs> him a nice feeling. That's great. Uh, oh, another factoid. Yeah, this uh, is it. This is it, Jake. Final factoids. Final, am, f- f- final factoid. I it's factor B out of factor. Ammo. I am out of factoid ammo, so it's all you. Uh, Holden, what was uh, Marty McFly's fake name that he gave Lorraine in the future? What did they think it was because of his underwear? Jack Attack. It's Calvin Klein. It's oh, Calvin right. Klein. Yeah, that's right. Um, <laughs> in the French release of the movie, the dub changed it to Pierre Cardin, because that was a more recognizable name for there. <laughs> and in the Mexican version, it was Levi Strauss. Ha! <laughs> That's funny. Is that the final fact? That was the final fact. <laughs> and what a final or fact it, it was. Or is it? Because what? we're going to have to do a fucking to be continued on this one. Yes, we are. To be continued just like the first film itself. We will be covering Back to the Future Part 2 and 3 and all of and the, the other And the cartoon bullshit. series starring Dan Castellaneta and Bill Nye the Science Guy. That. We will barely talk about that. I mean, if you count a half hour of deep dive plot uh, exposition and analysis, uh, uh, not a deep. Okay, fine. Well, we the will. ride, the tale. Game. 11 minutes at most. We talked about the Telltale game already in our Telltale episode. Mm, not enough, though. <laughs> Give me 12 minutes on the Telltale game and 40 minutes on the ride. Please. 40 minutes on the ride. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Back to the Future. We hope you enjoyed the sequel episode as well. Until then, I just want to say, if you'd like to support us further, patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. We do weekly bonus content for just $5 a month. For $15 a month, you can join us every Sunday for our Sunday study sessions. Uh, for example, on Sunday on Discord, we watched Back to the Future. This Sunday on Discord, we're going to watch Back to the Future Part 2. Very, very fun to hang out with everybody and watch or engage in whatever we're studying that week and uh, chat about with, with uh, the people there. Also, twitch.tv forward slash holdnatorsho. Check us out. Um, I stream Monday, Tuesday, Friday nights. I am going through a big move right now at the time of this recording, so I may uh, be off on a couple of those uh, as I attempt to move my life across the country. But stick around. We are definitely streaming mad, mad streaming. Twitch.tv forward slash holdnatorsho. Jake! Oh, all you got to do is follow your old buddy Jake on Twitter. You just go to at best Jake Young and you get to read all my thought plops and drops and snops. It's great. You're going to love it. Posting a lot of pictures of birds. Fantastic. Yes, you do. I love those bird pics. Uh, All right. And always remember, never stop bruising. And keep on whizzing. This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors, you can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. Price drop? Time to shop. Get to a Nordstrom Rack store today for first dibs on new markdowns. Now score even more, up to 70% off brands everyone loves at Nordstrom Rack. Denim, dresses, sneakers, tops, and more. Plus, get genius deals on jackets, sweaters, and boots for the whole family. 
Shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and save up to 70% with new markdowns. But hurry, deals this great won't last. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.